All right, everybody. Welcome back to Plenary Session. This is video edition. This is the Zoom edition. I've put together a brilliant panel of experts to talk about the balance, the pros and cons of the academy versus the industry. I have from left to, across my screen, at least, I'll do it that way. I have Sanam Logavi, and she is a hematopathologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, she is uh, an academic pathologist and a proud member of Pathology Twitter. Sanam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. We'll let people, we're going to go through in a second and you'll all tell us about your careers and lives. We have Papa Heem, Aaron Goodman. He looks like he's been touched by the sun. He might have been. He's in San Diego, California. Aaron Goodman, Papa Heem, he is a practicing heme malignancy expert, transplanter, and uh, uh, a master of all trades. That's what I call him. And we have, uh, he should need no introduction on this show, Dr. David Steensma. David Steensma has been a previous guest of this podcast long time ago in person in Portland, Oregon. He is, of course, a uh, longtime faculty member at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center, before that the Mayo Clinic. Now, currently, he's switched teams. He's playing for Novartis now as part of the hematology division there. And he's going to be able to talk about both sides of this question. So I thought, you know, and thank you so much to come in, David. It's hard. It's the hard to get you. It's hard to get you on this show. So I thought we might start by, I mean, maybe I'll just say a real quick blurb about everyone, but then let people talk about, you know, their own trajectory, just very briefly to kind of how, where you got to, how, how you got to where you are, um, uh, when you decided you want to go to academics and what made you decide to switch. I've listened to so many shows. David, you did the circuit when you switched. Uh, people made you explain yourself uh, in every <laughs> podcast. <laughs> they made you explain yourself. Uh, let's start with Sodom and then we'll, we'll go around. Sure. Um... I mean, I think my, you know, my story is not as interesting or as exciting as David's. Uh, I, you know, I actually started my residency. I did my residency in a semi-academic hospital at Cedars-Sinai in LA, uh, which was, you know, kind of affiliated with UCLA. But in reality, it was a private practice. It was a private practice hospital with a teaching program, with a residency program. Um, and then I did fellowship at Emmy Anderson, which is like a full-blown academic center. And it was just very clear to me that, you know, seeing both sides of the practice that I really wanted to do academics. I wanted to stay in academics and practice in academics. And, you know, I can elaborate on on the all the things that I love about academics, but that's how I settled. I saw, you know, the, the private practice part and then yeah. the academic part. And to me, it was a very clear choice. Clear choice. Now, um, and then the last question is, uh, uh, what is your current uh, balance like? How often are you looking at slides how often are you uh have research time how, how do you balance your your life these days sure. um so you know i think one of the good things about pathology and that's you know what i try to advertise when i talk about pathology is that it can be tailored uh to a very large degree uh, you know depending on what you like and how you like to practice i think my practice is maybe atypical in a sense uh because you know i do probably half patient care and half research. Mm. Uh, but part of my patient care service is uh, due to my involvement in the ECOG Leukemia Bank. I run the uh. ECOG Leukemia Bank. And so I sign out a lot of clinical trial samples uh, as well. So it's not only my specific, uh, you know, hospital patients that I'm taking care of. I see. Um, in a, you know, in an essence, it's like that. And then, you know, I do a lot of teaching. We have a large fellowship program and also the, the, you know, the Twitter engagement, it, it probably doesn't count towards any academic achievement, but it does take a lot of time. So I'd oh. say that I do spend a lot of time on that too. 
Oh, that's uh, got to agree with you there. Um, so it sounds like your clinical part and your research part kind of go hand in hand because of the because of the cooperative group work, and then you have uh, about half your time for research um, and teaching. Uh, Aaron Goodman, Papa Heem, I'm glad you could join us. You've had a busy morning. I love the shirt. Uh, you know, classic band for for people of our age. Uh, so, Aaron, what's your life like? What do you? How did you get to? How did you fall into this? Well, so I was a, a resident at Washu and I, I picked up an Ankh Live and I saw the, the, the <laughs> of, uh, no, I, 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 you were inspired by the I was inspired. I go, when I grow up, <laughs> I want, I want to be the giants, uh, and have my picture in that. Uh, it's not happened yet. I'm five years in, I, I'm still going for it. No, um, uh, um, you know, I, my father was a private practice radiologist, um, still is actually still working at a. Uh, age 70, just turned 70. Happy birthday, dad. Um, so I, I grew up in a physician household and, you know, that clearly influences, uh, influenced, I think, my decision to choose medicine. Uh, in college, uh, you know, I did research in a biochemistry lab, um, really just to Pipe get into medical school, I'll be honest with you. Of course, uh, I had played the game. You played the game. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm being, I, I, well, I tried it. I, it wasn't, it just wasn't my thing. I, and that's no, it wasn't me uh, in the lab, but I did it. Um, I got some exposure got into medical school. And then, you know, I was kind of lost till residency uh, where I went to WashU, which is in St. Louis, a pretty academic uh, uh, center. And um, that's kind of, it wasn't until really I was a second year resident where I finally had interns working with me, where I was kind of, you know, not in charge, but, uh, you know, at night you kind of are in charge. You're the only person there. And I was teaching and, um, you know, I just remember them looking up to me and being like, man, you know, so much stuff. And there I was as a second year resident, uh, not knowing anything really, at least in my head, but the, the fact of teaching really inspired me. And I did a chief residency and that really cemented that I wanted to be at an academic center where I could really continue to teach throughout my career, uh, do some research and, and take care of patients, being on the cutting edge uh, uh, of science and uh, just how my time split. I, I, I have a great gig. You know, I, you're going to hear me give a lot of love for academics. Uh, even though sometimes I'm cynical on Twitter about academics, we got it good. Uh, my gig is, so I'm a bone marrow transplanter, malignant hematologist. Uh, I take care of cancer patients or blood cancer patients from diagnosis through transplant if they need it. Uh, so some of my patients don't go that way. Um, and I do clinic two days a week, which seems like a lot to me, but it is only two days a week. Um, and uh, the other three days are errand time. Um, to really do what I want to do, which we can talk about later, uh -huh. uh, and then 12 weeks a year, which seems like a lot, but it's about it's once a month. I attend on the inpatient uh, bone marrow transplant leukemia cellular therapy service, uh, where I typically round in the morning uh, for three hours with a very large team, you know, where that classic flock where I'm the quarterback and it's very enjoyable. Uh, we take great care of patients, do a lot of learning on rounds. And, uh, you know, those weeks I'm busier, uh, but the, the, that's basically my split right now. It's a, it's a good balance. That's wonderful. And I think uh, you also log the uh, log the long hours of being probably uh, one of the, the, the strongest hematology teachers on Twitter. Uh, we'll come thank to that, you. too. We'll come to that. David, David, thank yeah. you so much. You know, I'm glad I was able to book this, get this down on the books. Um, people who want to know your full background, they got to go back and listen to the podcast with you. It's, it was actually, I think, one of the most listened to episodes in the pre-COVID era. Uh, sorry, COVID blew all the statistics out of the park. Um, but uh, David has had, um, you know, really a wonderful career from Mayo Clinic to Dana-Farber to Novartis. D David, tell us a little bit about, you know, the journey and, uh, and especially the recent switch. 
Yeah, I've I've made two big switches in my career. Um, you know, I'm a, a Midwesterner by temperament. Most of my family's in Michigan. Our oldest daughter now is in East Lansing. She's doing a PhD in plant biochemistry. So from my alma mater, uh, from state, your alma mater. Yeah, uh, yeah. probably a little yeah. bit. Uh, you know, a few hundred yards away, uh, different part <laughs> of of town in Just plant. A, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I went to medical school, at University of Chicago. Um, which I think you're also familiar with. Yeah, that's also uh, my alma mater. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, and then went out to, to Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and and loved it. You know, very clinically heavy um, institution, got terrific clinical training, got inspired very early on by uh, hematology, knew that was what I wanted to do. Um, you know, went away for a couple of years to England as, as part of the training and came back on the faculty at Mayo. I had a lab who was doing clinical trials, seeing lots of patients. Uh, and then in 2009, um, I got this opportunity to come to Boston. Uh, Gary Gilliland and Rich Stone invited me out. And they, you know, they, one of the things that I was really lured by was the ability, and Mayo is a terrific place. And it's, it's, you know, I have family members who are patients there. Um, but the one thing that that Boston really had was this scientific ecosystem, you know, lots of big lab groups that were just doing really terrific things, including Gary. Um, and so I made the switch. Uh, 2009 came, uh, got involved. Um, collaborations with Ben Ebert were really terrific. We, oh, we yeah. continue to stay close in touch. Um, you know, doing clinical trials of, of various uh, things with Dan D'Angelo and Rich and the, and the leukemia group just uh, uh, was really enjoying that. And then, you know, the pandemic uh, started and, and things were just, it was a challenging time. I did a, a, a couple months actually on the inpatient uh, uh, COVID oncology service, which was absolutely fascinating. Felt mm -hmm. like, you know, yeah. like we turned back time 20 years in medicine <clears throat> with getting rid of all the you know, the, the various uh, prior authorizations and all the things that make our, our lives as clinicians difficult. Right. Um, but then it, it all started coming back and uh, coming back with a vengeance. Um, and I got this call from the leader of Novartis's uh, Institute for Biomedical Research, Nibber. Um, Jay, Jay Bradner, another U Chicago grad. Yeah, I had met him. He was within a year of me at UFC. I really didn't get to know him until I came to the Farber. Um, just a terrific chemist, scientist, inspirational guy. And and he said, um, you know, we really need a hematologist for early drug development. And I'd always been kind of fascinated by that world and thought, I thought, no, that I'm not an industry guy. I'm an academic guy. I died in the wall. And uh, he called. And so I said, no. So he called back a few weeks later and he said, you know, come visit and see what we're about. Um, and, uh, and I did, and I was really impressed actually with how, uh, thoughtful the people I met were with the scientific research that was, that was going on. Um, and, and, uh, you know, some of the people, Alice Shaw, who, a thoracic oncologist from, oh, yeah. uh, from MGH and Jeff Engelman, just, uh, you know, really good colleagues potentially I thought to work with, and they, they proved to be. Um, and so, you know, I was turning 50 um, and thinking, what do I want to do for the next stage of my life? And uh, and I said, oh, I'll give this a try. And uh, so start 50th birthday, December 2020. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's just been 
it's been really an incredible learning experience and uh, I've had a, I've had a lot of fun with it. You know, there's lots of different jobs in industry. Yeah. And so what I do is different from, you know, what other people in industry would do. Uh, I get uh, to interact still with a lot of academics. I'm very closely connected to the science and that yeah. part of it's really fun. And then um, tell us a little bit about your week to week. How do you divide your time? Yeah, it's really very varied. So, so some of it is... Um, a big part of it is our clinical programs. And, you know, just like children being raised, drugs being raised go go through different problems and uh, challenges and uh, and need to be helped through that sometimes. So, um, you know, it's everything from helping prepare our regulatory filings to looking at data from individual patients on studies to the bigger picture of thinking where clinical unmet needs. A scientist will call and say, it's really interesting antibody, really interesting small molecule. It targets this. Is there a place in, in hematology uh, where, where that might be necessary? There's also a lot of discussion with our late development colleagues. You know, what uh, can we bring forward? What are their priority disease areas? And uh, a lot of just chatting with um, with investigators, with scientific teams uh, about the the potential. It's a really dynamic uh, place to work. And I have no idea where the fax is. I have not touched a fax machine in two years. <laughs> and I used to have one like right next to my desk and I was always faxing back and oh, forth. Yeah. That part of my life is gone. Well, you don't miss that part. And congratulations on the 50th birthday and the transition. And uh, I got a lot of questions for you all. Um, okay, I guess I have to go very quickly because I feel like for the sake of full disclosure so people will know where I'm coming from. Um, I guess I think I'm probably very close to Aaron because I'm a hemonc doctor. I do, uh, uh, it's varied between one and two days a week of clinic depending on need. Uh, I, right now I'm doing one day a week of clinic of heme and heme malignancy at the general. Um, and, uh, but I think this fall I signed up for another, so it's going to jump back up a little bit. Um, and then I do about 14 weeks of inpatient service, always on Hemon consults. So always with the fellow between the general and, and the VA. Um, so we cover everything. Um, and, uh, but, uh, always with the fellow, which is great. And then the rest of my time, uh, I spend, you know, research. We, we have a epidemiology group and then, uh, teaching a few classes and then this stuff, this kind of stuff that I really enjoy. Okay. The first question, you know, I have a feeling, I think Sonam and Aram, Aaron have a lot in common in the sense they're both sort of consummate teachers. They love heme malignancy. They're both happy to look at a slide. I'm happy to look at a slide for the first 15, 20 seconds. And then afterwards, I'm happy, I'm happy, to, I'm happy to move. I'm happy to move right along. But, but um, and, and so I get a sense that, you know, both of those two are going to talk about love of teaching and we're going to come to that. And then, and then David, I think people should also know, you know, he wasn't a typical academic when he was an academic. Of course he was, he, you know, he ran trials. He, he even had a lab for a time. Um, you know, he did all the sort of classic hematology lab and uh, trialist stuff. And he was a consummate clinician, but he also had that literary business in him. He also had the love of writing, and he has written many, many great essays that we talk about in our prior discussion. Um, so I think you have a very interesting perspective, and I'd love to hear about the transition. But the first question I wanted to ask you all, which I think is a real icebreaker, is I want to jump right to what is the part of the job that you dislike the most? What do you actually hate about your job? Um, what is the part that you wish you could replace? And many years ago, I met a senior physician and um, I asked him, you know, what percent of the time do you do what you love and what percent of the time do you do what you have to? And he was like, I'm 90-10, what I love and what I have to. And uh, so what is that part that you have to do? Um, maybe we'll, 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 uh, we'll go to Aaron, uh, uh, Sonam, and then David on this. 
Aaron, what's the part that you hate about your job? And I guess you might you might say prior auth. Yeah, you know, actually, to be honest, by the I enjoy the part of prior auth when I finally get to the physician to speak with. That part I actually do enjoy. Uh, Why? Because you give him a little education. Well, you give him some teaching, and I usually, you know, it's like a, not a competition, but you want to get the drug for your patients, and it's mm -hmm. usually a successful. It's the process of getting them made. But for me, it's easy. It's email, uh, which probably isn't unique to being an academic physician. Uh, uh, but it's the, you know, I probably get, I really think 300 emails a day, a lot of junk, but Nothing how much after, are on Clive? How many are real emails you have to respond yeah, to? After on Clive, maybe two. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after on Clive are the administrative emails that are given the same exact email by 10 different people because they yeah. don't think you've seen the first one. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, nothing good usually comes from email. Uh, uh, it's either junk or it's something I got to do that I don't want to do. Uh, um, and that's the least favorite part of my day. And I used to be very diligent at doing it every day at the end of the day, but lately not so much. And I just said, what happens if I don't do it? And I someone pointed this out on Twitter. I forget who made it. It's not my original thought, but uh, uh, that uh, deadlines in academic are kind of, they're not Artificial. like real, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you have to do this, uh, this meaningless task. But from self-experimentation, nothing ever bad happens when I'm late on those things. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm being serious. Uh, what's, know, what, yeah. I mean, what are they going to do? You didn't do your online, uh, you know, environmental training on time. You know, they're not going to, nothing bad's going to happen. So, so I've learned to balance that, but emails for sure. The worst part, the worst part. Um, well put, you know, I heard a rumor and I think you'll be interested that, uh, Baselga, when he was in his prime, he got so many emails, he had to hire someone just to sit there to do his email and that he would just be a consultant for the email manager. I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I put emails up there. Uh, Sanam, what's the part of the job that you dislike the most? You know, I have to tell you, I, I was thinking, but you know, when you raise that question, it's really yeah. hard for me to think of something that I really hate about my job. Um, and I think, you know, that, that tells you how fortunate and lucky I feel. Yeah, exactly. I, that's, that's something. But, that's something. Um, but, you know, I, if I had to choose one thing, I would say it's, it's not email because that's like my primary mode of communication i never call the fellows i i communicate through email so i don't mm -hmm. mind the email but yeah. um it's the mandatory it's like the online training stuff oh, you yeah. know and i don't think that's unique to academics i'm sure all institutions have you know the mandatory training stuff but i find most of it is a waste of time that can be spent doing better things but how are you going to learn know, like, to take privacy seriously if you don't do a few online modules? How are you going to ever learn that? <laughs> you know, I, I understand the logic that the institutions have to protect themselves by offering these. You know, I understand mm -hmm. it to to an extent, but I don't think it's a very, um, you know, useful or, or efficient use of everyone's time. And also, I have to say, the, le the, the thing that I really don't like is writing up my, my own annual review every December. It's ah. just a pain. I, I never look forward to that. So those are the two things that I don't like, but the everyday, you know, tasks, I actually enjoy doing. I you're going to sell these people on pathology. I think you're going to sell yeah. a few people. Uh, <laughs> David, how about you? What is the part of the Novartis? Uh, uh, is it the DocuSign? What, what are you doing these days that, uh, <laughs> that gets you? What's the part that gets you? Well, we, we do have our own online modules. So that's uh, universal. That's to, ubiquitous, huh? To every, every kind of institution, I think. I suspect even churches and religious institutions have online. <laughs> online. Um, I would say the, the hardest part of my job, and it isn't the part of the job that I hate, it's just difficult, is the, the there's not unlimited resources. 
uh, even in you know a, a very uh, large and well-funded uh, company, resources aren't unlimited. One of my heroes, Doctor, the late Doctor Esty, used to say that there's few ideas that are too silly to test in a clinical trial. However, you have to prioritize which ones are worth paying for, and and mm -hmm. so it's the the prioritization and the things where you think, well. That could work, but it's a lot less likely to work than this other thing. Or there's there's a much greater need here, so so the resources should be put here. I think that's the hardest part. The hardest uh, part is is, is, is is prioritizing. Prioritizing, yeah. yeah. But to some degree, I mean, that's why they pay you the big bucks because that's the that's well, the part that only you can. I mean, really, there's you know, like it's sort of a value of information question, which is like which of these things has the most you know probability of success slash importance slash market share slash return on investment etc um that's gonna I, I would imagine that like also it's satisfying for you to think about that yeah and it's not easy because you're doing it with incomplete information no. you know um we know intellectually that you know most drugs that are in the clinic are going to fail they're not going to you know get to an fda approval um, so how do you pick the ones that have the, the best probability of success? And, and you look at all the data, you look at the external landscape and look at the science, but at the end of the day, there's a judgment call there. And it's hard because you know you're going to be wrong sometimes. Um, and yeah. things that maybe didn't look so good are going to turn out to, 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 to be really uh, hugely successful. I mean, this is well before my time, but 20 plus years ago, it was difficult for Brian Drucker and colleagues to convince the leadership of Novartis uh, to develop a drug in CML. Um, and yet uh, there was a you know visionary uh, leader chemist who's now the chair of board of directors and Brian and a few others who saw what it could be and you know completely transformed the, the disease. But you know, it's, it's like um, investment analysts. The, the majority of them are wrong. You know, you read these predictions about what the Fed's going to do or, you know, uh, how different sectors are going to do or, or good goodness, you know, Jim Cramer on on uh, Mad Money. And, you know, he doesn't know anything. Um, he's wrong more times than not. Um, you know, intelligent. He, he just but, missed one one so, major financial crisis. No, no. Yeah, anyone, yeah. anyone, exactly. anyone could have missed it. Anyone could have missed it. I see. You know, that's really interesting. And to be honest with you, that's that's part of the reason why I could never do basic science laboratory work, because I feel like you got to get up there and give a talk and be a believer that you are the one who's got the thing that's successful. When in reality, I'm always just overwhelmed with the fact that the odds are 100,000 to 1 that I'm actually going to be a bust. And even your boss, who is brilliant, you know, JQ1, I see, I don't see in the, I don't see on the shelves. <laughs> I didn't see Bromo Domain inhibitors getting to the market quite yet, but okay. Um, yeah, your point's well taken, and I think that's got to be tough. Um, uh, now, here's my next question. Okay, this is, uh, this is going to be about, I mean, I, I want to showcase a little bit about why I think Sonam and, and Aaron like um, the Academy. And I think one of the big things that drive both of them is teaching. And I think it's, it's easy, and everyone will concede, that when you have an interested pupil, when you have somebody there who really wants to learn, um, you know, you're all, I'm always blown away when I have somebody who coming in, they're like, oh, I read these three articles, what do you think? And then they go back, and you mentioned something in passing, and they do some homework, and they bring it. Um, 
what's it like teaching the reluctant student? You know, the, the person who comes through on your service and they're like, you know what, I, I, I don't need to know Heme Path. And, and for you, Aaron, the somebody who comes by and says, you know, I don't need to know uh, Erdheim Chester disease. Uh, you know, does it have, uh, what's the mutation in again? Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with the, the challenging teaching? Um, do you still find it validating? Um, Sanam, what do you think? Yeah, I have to say, uh, you know, I think enthusiasm is contagious. When I see, you know, when I see fellows that want to learn, I'm obviously like hyped up and I want to do more and I want to do just like something extra to teach them. But I do view teaching as an essential part of my job. I think it's, you know, one of the most important parts of my job. And so even for the, you know, for the students that are not as enthusiastic, I force it on them. I don't care if they want to learn or not, you know, like, if they're sitting with me at the microscope, they have to learn. They have to pay attention. Obviously, I'm not as excited about it, I think, and it probably comes through to them as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I take it very seriously. And I tell them, you know, I say, you know, this is your time to learn. You know, why are you wasting your time? You know, you're going to go out on your own in two years and you're going to have to make these decisions. You can make decisions. You can make mistakes now. And it's at no cost to anyone because there's someone there that's going to fix it Checking after you. you. Yeah. But after you go, you know, after you go out and on your own, you know, the world is going to be a very different and brutal place. So you better take this time to learn. And usually works. And and what's the goal? And the goal is they have to all be nearly perfect. I mean, if they're training yeah. a path, they come out, they have to be like nearly perfect. Is that right? You know, it's not, it's yeah, not like our I mean, jobs think... where we can. There's a, there's quite a window of uh, of tolerability, yeah. but. Pathology training is interesting. You know, when you first enter pathology, it's like almost everybody's clueless. It's like you're learning an entirely different language. You look at slides and you have no idea what you're looking at. You know, it's it's very different from what you what you learned in medical school. Uh, but I think after a while, after like the third or fourth year, it starts making sense. But we have, at least in the U.S., I think, you know, most pathologists have the the uh, luck and fortune now of super subspecialization, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody's subspecializing. And you, you know, like the general search path practice is now very, very rare. It's almost like a dying, you know, breed. Um, and it's probably the hardest thing to do. But our fellows, you know, by the time they graduate, they've done two years of straight theme path. So they're, they tend to be like very good by the I time see. they're going out. But there are yeah. people that are just brilliant and, you know, some people are competent, others are brilliant. So. Oh, that's that's interesting. And then yeah. you also get students who are not going to pathology, but you show them the basics. Not too much. No, very rare. Very so you're fortunate rare. to get people yeah. who really care yeah. about what you're doing. Yeah. We get people like towards the end of their training. And I think, you know, that's, yeah. Do you ever look at a slide and before you can even articulate why you have an intuition what it is? You're just like, oh, that, that's that. And then you're like, and the reason is that this, 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 this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah all happens. the time. <laughs> all the time now. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that when you look enough, that's what that's what kind of happens. And sometimes it's even hard to articulate what it is that makes you so um, certain. You're, yeah. it, it, we call that AI, huh? <laughs> Visual processing AI. You can't even say why. Aaron, what about you? I mean, I see you. You've got, uh, you know, great tutorials. You've got a loyal following. Um, uh, but, but what about the student, you know, uh, who is, you know, not paying attention, not interested in in the intricacies of B cell lymphoma. How do you how do you deal with that? Well, first of all, you know, with medical students these days, uh, they usually at least fake interest. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I'm pretty good at you know. I so I teach the second year uh, hematology course to the MS twos. So uh, and it's actually the first uh, 
introduction into patho, you know, pathology, you know, they do all the, you know, normal life stuff. And then the second year is when they start learning about disease and hematology is the first course. And uh, despite my love uh, for hematology, I recognize when I enter that small group of about 20 students that uh, the love for coagulation and uh, leukemias isn't going to be as palpable and as enthusiastic <laughs> as I have. I, 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 I get it. And, and um, you know, uh, uh, I usually go around and I, I always like asking anyone considering a career in hematology. And, you know, there's you know, one or maybe a few or at least oncology. Uh, but, you know, you could. I fine. I maybe I'm stereotyping. You could see the orthopods in the audience, the surgeons, and uh, yeah. you, you see what's going on. And and um, you know, so you know, we just I, I start out that course, and you know, we we get the blackboard out, we go through the coagulation cascade, and I actually like take, uh, teaching the students who are not interested. And um, you know, you know, it's more rewarding to get you know someone who's disinterested in a field, or maybe that wasn't their first choice, to see why I think hematology is so so fascinating and cool. So you like to pass the spark on. Uh, I like to pass the spark on. And, uh, you know, in, in you know, the key is being interactive, getting them involved. And eventually, you know, it's problem solving hematology. I think anyone who goes into medicine likes problem solving, even if they don't want to uh, treat acute leukemia, uh, you know, or know what, you know, the intricacies of fibrinogen and the different domains. Uh, you know, you, you draw it out and you connect it. And you, in again, nothing's ever I think what it gets past a lot of uh, uh, physicians, and I've I learned this from attending class myself. You know, when you learn about acute leukemia, sometimes they pick the acute leukemia god or goddess to give that talk on acute leukemia, who yeah. only studies acute leukemia, knows every little mutation and all the little things. And for the medical student level two, they don't got to know much about acute leukemia, right? I mean, you need to know how it presents. How, how important it is to recognize it early that these patients are going to die fairly fast if you don't start a, a abrupt treatment. And so that's how I kind of approach those things and tie it into how it connects to all the other specialties and how they're dealing with it. And I, I feel like I can usually get most people involved and in, in at least a little bit enthusiastic in it. And, and uh, so that's how I do it. You know, I make things very clinical, very basic. Nothing's ever too basic, uh, even when you're teaching medical students and, and above. So. It's funny you say that because I think uh, very similar to you. Uh, many years ago, when I was just uh, first first few years of faculty, uh, a senior lymphoma doctor said, "You know what? Why don't you teach that uh, second year medical class on uh, B cell lymphomas?" And I said, uh, "Oh, you sure? I mean, I'm kind of you know." And he's like, "Oh, here, here's my slide deck, and just go teach it." And then I went. I realized why he passed it off because it was literally the the worst slide deck I've ever seen. It was like literally <laughs> 170 slides, and it was like follicular grade one, grade three, three A. 3B, DLBCL, boo, 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 boo. And it was just like rote memorization for the audience. And I looked at it, and I think the first year I gave it, and it was horrific, and everyone was passed out, and I could tell it was just a train wreck. And I was like, I really, you know, I'm used to talking about work I'm passionate about, my research, and now I'm talking about work I'm not passionate about. But then the next year I re-envisioned it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to present this as the, the reality of life, which is actually, you know, as Plato says, the goal of, uh, of biology is to carve nature at the joints. But when it comes to neoplasm in the B-cell lineage, you know, there's not really natural joints. And the WHO is always arbitrarily carving things. What if we thought of it as a spectrum from, you know, slow to very, very fast, you know, from, from marginal zone to Burkitt's. And then also from germinal center B-cell differentiation to plasmacytic B-cell differentiation. And you think of this kind of spectrum and you get cancer that can arise anywhere along this spectrum. And, you know, there's some cancers that they've always got some fraction of cells in G0 you can never eradicate, you can never cure. You know, those have certain principles of treatment, only treat if it's causing a problem. And other cancers where you can have curative intent and they have different principles of treatment. And so I kind of presented it that way, left out all the memorization, just showed them the stuff, and uh, it transformed the lecture and they kind of really liked it. But 
you know, I do think you have to meet people where they are. And I do think it's, it's sometimes it's tough to, you know, to, to give the lecture and realize that, you know, maybe all this person needs to know is when to call the attending and when to give hydria, you know, that's really all they really need to know. Um, David, here's my question for you. I mean, I'm happy to, if you want to talk, say a word about the teaching, you want to say a word about the teaching? I have a different one. For yeah. You. Let's yeah. say, we'll see what you, so what, what, when you were a teacher, you were a consummate teacher. What was the, what was the toughest challenge for you with these teachers? As, as you with know, these I, students? I, one thing I was really fortunate about was that early in my career um, as a specialist, I'd had really great teachers all along, but um, Ilu Teferi at Mayo Clinic was, was really, oh, I think, for medical students, for trainees, for doctors who are not specialists in the area, the consummate teacher, because he could you know, break things down to what's the most important, just as you were describing. Uh, the guy was awarded Teacher of the Year by a male medical student so many times that finally they, they just gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. And, said, <laughs> and took him out of the running. Yeah. He's not, he's not yeah. eligible. We've we got to give somebody else a, yeah. a, a It was like the so. Oprah Winfrey of, of the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So So that I tried to consciously imitate, you know, obviously he's inimitable and he's got his own style, but his ability to distill things down to the essence and make them interesting. And uh, the late John Altman at um, uh, University of Chicago was also very good at that. One of the main reasons I'm in hematology as a, as a field, because he could bring in all this history and culture and society into his lectures about, you know, globinopathies that otherwise could have been really cut and dry. Um, and with the emphasis on the dry. So uh, he was he was a really a great teacher as well. So and the interesting thing is, in even though I'm in an industry role now, I still get to do a lot of teaching, um, you know, because the vast majority of the 100,000 people that work at Novartis are not hematologists, number one. And I can still do external teaching and present at conferences. Now, conflict of interest rules limit a little bit what I can. But Ash just changed him this year. You could be on that stage at Ash now. You can. <laughs> yeah, it is because they, they were getting really a little bit silly. Uh, they um, were silly. I agree because yeah. you should, the person who does the work should actually present the work. It doesn't matter where they are. Yeah, I yeah. do think. But so, okay. Yeah. So yeah, go on. Finish your thought. I interrupted. So, so uh, yeah, so I still get to, to, to do that, um, uh, which uh, I, I find very rewarding. You know, one thing you said that I just want to make a point is that, you know, uh, 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 John Altman at the uh, University of Chicago, and I think they've named like lectures after him now uh, because he wasn't there when I was there, but the lecture I think was named after him, um, you know, talking about things outside of medicine to draw parallels and draw examples. Uh, uh, I think it's a little bit harder now, actually, uh, because uh, everyone is so sensitive and you worry that you'll walk onto a topic that people have very strong feelings on. And so, you know, I used to have a joke and now I have like five filters in my mind. Like, does my joke pass all my filters? And by the time I tell the joke, it's not funny anymore. Um, but I do feel like something is being lost in this. Aaron Goodman, how do your jokes go down in the class? It's a little uh, tough crowd these days, huh? <laughs> Tough crowd. I, I, I still, I think most people who know me, uh, even my colleagues, I do joke around a lot. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm pay attention. You think before you speak, even on Twitter, you know, we've sure. all, we're sure. human. We all, but you're three all, jokes away from two more modules, two yeah, more modules. We've, <laughs> all, uh, you know, we've all made stupid things. And, you know, uh, I think people who know me, I uh, know I'm a you know good person, but yes, uh, yeah, yeah, you do. Have to pay that attention. doesn't that doesn't count much in this world. Okay, so uh, you know, so uh, okay, this is the question to David. This is the question to all of us. Uh, but I'll give it to David the first crack at this question. This is the question I think that's the motivator. 
Um, it feels as if, it feels as if, and actually we have, we have empirical data and I'll tell you about our data in a second, but it feels as if there's an exodus to the biopharmaceutical industry, particularly from people who have background in our domains, medical oncology, hematology, hemalignancy. Um, one thing is that the pandemic is a, it shakes you and makes you realize what matters in life. And if, you know, maybe what matters in life is not doing epic notes at 11 PM at night. And so naturally somebody's going to say, screw this, you know, I'm sick of this. I don't have to, you know, I don't want to build level five anymore. And they want to look for other opportunities. And this is a opportunity where you get to use a lot of your knowledge. So that's, that's a natural thing. Um, the next question I had was, is it even true? Is there really even an exodus? But we've done some work, and I think somebody I work with is going to write this up soon, and we're going to publish it. But actually, it does look to be that way, that there is an increase in, in turnover over the last five years. And it's um, not explained by retirement uh, because of the age of graduation of people. We use a Medicare data set. Uh, it's probably explained by people in the early career, first five years switching. And that's happening a little bit more frequently, I think. We'll, we'll, try, to, we'll try to finish up our analyses. Um, but the question, of course, is why? You know, is it? the shock to the system because the pandemic makes you think about what's important. Is it sort of secular trends in medicine that have gotten one, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back? I think from when I was a student to where I am now, the amount of paperwork the attending has to do has increased exponentially. Uh, the paperwork, the modules, the, and, and even the difficulty, you know, my attending used to co-sign my notes with his hand, you know, his or her hand. Now I have to co-sign notes with, you know, three, two factor authentication and three login screens. Um, um, and I think it's different for people who are coming out of fellowship who go straight to the industry versus people like David who had really long and accomplished careers going to the industry. So that's the question, David. People like yeah. you, Nina Shaw, um, uh, uh, Al Alice Shaw. That's another one. I forgot about A.T. Shaw. Mm -hmm. um, and even Jay before. I think Jay was one of the first uh, when he was recruited. Um, but that's a very important seat uh, in biomedicine. So what is it, David? Why are they, why are they leaving? I think I think there's a push and a pull. Push -pull. I, the, You're the going pull? with the push pull. Okay, go on, go on. No, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. On. I mean, so and and actually, the two worlds have gotten a lot closer together in uh, some that's ways one of my than, points, yeah. as well. But um, I think you know, industry there, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on, and and sometimes people want to be, you know, want to be part of that. Um, there's also, um, you know, once some people that you know or respect make that change the activation energy becomes less for for you doing that that's uh, a really interesting it, point yeah it, like when know, alice shaw goes it tells a lot of people like this is a very legitimate career opportunity yeah and in a, a very legitimate place to be yeah. to be doing work if they can if they can recruit somebody like that who yeah. you know we we uh you know envy how how much uh she's been able to accomplish so um so i think that's part of it is is there's um, the, the, the pull part is just, there's so much cool science going on. There's, there's, uh, just, uh, and, and you don't have to be applying for grants all the time to be able to do it and, and writing progress reports and such, uh, to, to the same degree and getting your haircut from your NIH grant. Cause every, every grant I got from NIH ever yeah. had like some percentage lopped off the top. And then I yeah. had to think about, well, how am I actually going to do the experiments? So, you know, that, that's, that's part of part of it. Um, the other is is the push, and I get a lot of people reaching out from academia, uh, you know, exploring making that that transition. And the one thing that I really want to establish with everybody I talk to is, are they doing reaching out because they really want to do the job in industry because there's there is a lot of cool stuff about it, or are they reaching out because they're so dissatisfied 
with their current position and with what their their day-to-day life is. And there are, you know, I love my clinical practice. I love teaching. But as you guys have alluded to, there's so much that comes along with that. Uh, you know, the amount of time for doing the the electronic uh, notes, the, um, you know, the, the extra administrative burden of you, you can't just prescribe something anymore. You've got to go through so many different hoops of, you know, uh, in approvals and, and navigating clinical pathways for some institutions. And it just, the, the proportion of the day that was the really fun part, sitting in front of the patient, talking to them, you know, uh, talking with your fellows about why do we approach this condition this way? What is the differential diagnosis here? What might be going on? Those things that I think we get a lot of energy from we're becoming less and less. And Tate yeah. Shanafelt, who's the chief wellness yeah. officer at Stanford, I'll finish with it with this yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah. No, that's um, you know, he and Lottie Derby at the Mayo, they've done some really uh, interesting research, which suggests like 20% is that magic proportion of your day that if 20% of your activities are the things that really give you energy, you can put up with a lot in that other 80%. They're experts on burnout. They're experts on, on wellness, on career satisfaction. They've got a lot of empiric data backing this up. So so if it's, it drops down to 12%, yeah. you're in trouble. You're at risk. And if it goes to 22%, then that's why the hospital windows don't open. You know, that's what they make sure. They make sure those windows are not going to open up on you. But you know what, David? I, I have to say one more thing in addition to what you're saying, which is, and you tell me if I'm wrong. I honestly think the university, um, they have no incentive and they don't care about retention because every year we have a factory of the cheapest labor force on planet earth who don't know no better. And that's the fellows. And we're going to take a fellow, give him three days a week, a clinic and give him 12 weeks of service. And we're going to run them. We're going to run them and we're going to pay him like 200 grand, but I'm going to make another 200 grand off their backs. I could never get away with doing that for a full professor who's 30 years in the job because they know how the money works. And I have this unlimited labor force. So if I lose you know, star people, I mean, mid-career stars are, hem- are losing them all the time. I just don't think they just, I mean, they need a few to keep the donors happy. But, you know, I just don't think they care. And the people running it are no longer, I mean, or they're increasingly moving towards, we are picking people to run this who are good money managers and not really scholars. And even when they were scholars, their scholarship is money management to some degree. But I mean, scholarship in the traditional sense of the word, what you mean it to be, the kind of person who's going to see, you know, seek us and write about it and write about genetics and what's the link between genetics and disease, which is still really sort of a very important issue and not fleshed out, and also write about an experience he had and what it makes him think about mortality. That's what I think is scholarship like you. Um, to me, you're the, you're the ultimate scholar, but I don't, nobody values that. You know, nobody cares. You know, they're happy to let those scholars go. We have an unlimited labor force. Thoughts, David? Universities don't care. That's my intention. Well, I think it's very microenvironment dependent and I Typical say, bone marrow doctor, <laughs> microenvironment. Okay, go back to the microenvironment. All right, go on, go on. I would say institution dependent, but even within institutions, there's a there's a lot of variation. I mean, I saw departments at at Dana Farber. Um, overall, an institution that I think still really retains a, a, a terrific uh, core of scholarship. But there were departments that were dysfunctional, and you'd see an eager new fellow join that department and think, "Oh boy." You know why did they pick that? And then you know, two up. years later, they're yeah. they're they're leaving to hike the Appalachian Trail for six months, <laughs> and, 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 and not and like so, Mark Sanford did, and not like Mark Sanford. Okay, <laughs> not, no, the, geez, the real Appalachian, the real Trail. Appalachian Trail. Yeah, they're really hiking <laughs> Appalachian Trail. Sanam, what do you? So, no, sorry, finish your thought. So it's so dependent on the microenvironment, and I think there there are um, institutions and 
uh, groups within those institutions where the leaders really do develop and protect their wow. their faculty and try to make sure to push back against those institutional forces that that make it more difficult. And there are other places where they're just not effective leaders, where the leader is concerned only about themselves and, you know, the department can do what it wants. And, and you know, that's, I think, where you, you see so much pain. You know what we do with a leader like that? We promote him. Okay, Sanam, uh, what do you... <laughs> We promote that person. Sanam, what, what do you think? I mean, I, one, I guess my question is, do you feel it's the same in your field? Um, and, uh, uh, and if so, uh, um, uh, what do you think the, the causes are? I don't think it's the same in my okay. field for several reasons, I think. One um, is that, you know, the opportunities are not the same for, for pathologists. The, you know, the roles that you can take on in the industry, um, I don't think are as satisfying um, as as you know, either practice, uh, um, academic or private practice, uh, or at least it's not been defined, well defined yet, you know. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I, I listened to all of you uh, speak about all, all the bureaucracy and the reasons for burnout, and they're really non-existent in, in pathology. Really, I don't have to deal with prior authorizations. That's I don't funny. have to do epic notes. I don't have to do, it's, you know, I, I almost like I feel like it's a secret and I shouldn't say it but you know I want to I want to encourage people to go into pathology so you know I I I get I literally get paid to learn like that that's my job my most important job is to learn and just get better and better at what I do um and you know I I mean that to me is you're like you know, an NFL player just, then you're getting played to improve work out it is it is in essence like I am I am my uh like my most i guess important student you right. know like and I, you're also I just, your I'm most important judge like you're I'm judging constantly yeah. learning and you know i get paid to do it i cannot imagine a better gig so now what about um, the few times the pathologist calls me and says you need to reorder some stain or genetic test because we can't order because that's called self-referral what's what is what's this business going oh, on yeah i think also a little bit different in in our hospital setting because we're you know like um an nci designated cancer center that the billing is a little bit different we do actually order things on our own cases all the without time without having to ask the, the, oh yeah the only reason i'll tell you i can even order like ngs genetic i can order anything i want the only reason i reach out to the um you know the nurse practitioners or uh the apts to order things is that it's just faster i email them and i say you know can you order this it's, it's faster and more efficient for me to ask them to order it otherwise so is, i can order whatever i want this is what it takes to make cancer history it's you that's know just, it, just, i, I tell you it's, it's crazy <laughs> all right all right all right about. you know <laughs> if i if i wasn't uh, if i wasn't so old my brain don't work no more i would think about going back do a little more residency training aaron what about you what do you think though what do you think is leading to this exodus at least in your line of work she has oh, a good job. I have to say, I, every time I hear I hear you talk, I'm like, that sounds really good. Oh, I've told her I want to be a pathologist. It's too late now. You, you know, you could be. You actually know how to look at those slides. I mean, yeah, he, I mean, he, a little he bit. He qualifies for the boards. If he does a fellowship, he qualifies for heme passports. He can sit yeah, yeah. for heme passports. If she watched me try to focus the slide right now, <laughs> she would be, like, so embarrassed, and she would never talk to me again. She just sees me try to get it in focus. <laughs> Uh, it's a little uh, rusty. Okay, Aaron. So, what about you? Yes, what do you your think? question was: Well, it's why are they leaving? Why are they leaving? Why are you fellows uh, always yeah. going? 
Uh, it's tempting to yeah. work at Carrier Farm, you know. That's that's the, dream, the big so. Carrier Farm. The big dream. I'm sorry. So, um, <laughs> I, I think you know, as with any complex issue, and you know, it, it's there's many facets. There is many micro environments. You know, for for the for the clinician who wants to run trials, uh, 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 in you know, design trials, uh, and do all those things, uh, it's. The job, I think, in, in in industry is fairly similar. Uh, uh, granted, you're not directly taking care of the patients, but if you know if you do it as an academic, you know you're either finding funding for yourself, which can be quite difficult uh, and sometimes painful, um, or you're working with an industry-sponsored study. That, but you know the fun part, you know, the industry's done all. You know, right? They designed the study, they wrote the protocol, uh, they did the design of the study, they even write get to write the paper these days. Uh, um, so. You know why? Why would you do it? Right, why paper. would you do it in in academics when you can do it in the industry and probably get paid more money? Uh, um, I don't know that to be true, uh, but it seems that way. So I think it's you know if you're under that mindset, I don't I don't think it's unreasonable to consider industry. But for like myself, to me, it makes no sense for me to ever go to industry. Nor do I think any industry would ever hire uh, 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 me. Not without um, a haircut. Know, Yes, not well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, can I can I walk in with the Nirvana? I mean, I'm working today. Sorry, UCSD. Uh, you know, <laughs> could you I walk mean, into the Nirvana? I, you I, know, I'm at work having the, my the new sport. office. I see these Google Facebook people. They look like you don't you you know you. I won't make my joke, but uh, yeah, you can't you can't really tell because it's very casual. Um, okay, so so your point is, I mean, but but the root of it is, it's not just the casual ness of the job that are that you like you 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 would not i mean you really like something about the type of teaching you're doing yeah i mean what i get to do is i just don't think i could do any so first if you're if you're in academics i mean yeah it's research that you i mean i like taking care of patients so that's number one okay and um i, I do like taking care of patients even though sometimes i'm like man it'd be easier if i didn't take care of patients the sum balance of the benefit and um uh, 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 gained in my life is better by taking care of patients. Now, I think if I took care of patients five days a week and saw 40 a day, uh, that would be not uh, doable for myself because I wouldn't be able to provide the type of care that I want uh, and I would go nuts. Uh, but in academics, I'm allowed to see not nearly as many patients. Uh, I still get to, before ever I see a new patient, I get to read about the patient. I have some time to do so. I learn. I see the patients, usually with a fellow. So at the same time, I get to teach. Uh, and, you know, I don't think I, I can't do that in any other job. This is the job that allows me to do that. And yes, I guess I take a pay cut. But if anyone complains about paying academics, we do well. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you know, we're not we're not poor. Uh, uh, we're all paid uh, very reasonably well in academics. Yeah, it might not be as much as private practice, but I'm not seeing 10,000 patients. I'm going to send you some San Francisco Redfin, and then you'll change your tune, uh, my friend. Uh, pay. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that, but, but it just depends. Like, you know, maybe if, you know, maybe if I worked at UCSD and I was a sole trialist and a different thing, maybe I would see things different, at least though, for what I want out of academics, it works perfectly for me. Uh, and I'm fortunate I am at a good, you know, my division and my my cancer center. I mean, we're I'm in a great place. I mean, everyone's kind. Like the egos that I maybe saw or the competitiveness I saw at other places, it doesn't it exists to some extent, but it's not as bad. And, and it's 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 uh, tolerable for me. And I think even in I'm sure in industry, David could say there's probably egos and tensions too. Uh, it's just different types of of, of arguments. So um, I think you know, to yeah. summarize, yeah, for me, no, some, sorry, yeah balance of everything. And I don't think I could achieve that doing any other job, even though I have to do 300 emails a day and a half are from Live, I can put up with that. <laughs> <laughs> I can put up with that. It's a small price to pay. 
uh, 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 and I and I uh, and I want to let fellows and radical students listen to this. Don't listen to those disgruntled, burnt out people on Twitter. Academics is awesome, okay, and uh, it's rewarding. And uh, 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 it's, please consider it. Don't just you know, yeah, we have a good job. And you know, one thing I want to point out is that that's something a theme you're pulling on, which is something I really do agree with, which is that this entire conversation is is really from a privileged position. My parents are immigrants. The idea that work would be something you enjoyed doing for money. It was like not even in their thought process. It's like you work to feed your family so your kids like have clothes on their back. And if you get any pleasure from the work, that's just all gravy. And yet here we are in the modern world and we're like, oh, 10% of my job is annoying. It's like, it's called work, buddy. That's why you get the check. And to be honest, even though we complain about the pay, we also have to be honest that we are paid much more than the median household income in this country. Um, and if you do a few more Onk Lives, you'll be paid a lot more. So, so I hear, so I hear. I don't, I don't get too many Onk Live invitations. Um, so I think that's important to say. Um, and then uh, I guess I do want to point on the burnout, and I'm curious what David thinks about this, which is that I do think, I mean, and I'm going to be careful how I put it, the system can be cruel and unfair, and it can be exploitative, and I've always been a critic of the long work hours just for the sake of work hours. I've been a critic of medical training where we train interns to kind of be paperwork factories because we don't want to hire you know, staff to do that work. It can be cruel and unfair, um, but I do worry that in an effort to focus on wellness and burnout and make it easier for interns, the pendulum can swing too far, and you can forget that medicine is also, and it's supposed to be, it needs to be hard. It needs to push you and challenge you and make you struggle, especially when you're young in training. So you have that confidence. Just like, you know, if you, I don't know, if you put a gun to my head right now and you said you got to go ride your bike 150 miles, I know, even though I didn't prepare for it today and I, even though I may have had a drink last night, um, I know I can do it because it's psychological, because I've done it so much. Um, and similarly, you need to know when you're in practice that if you get a day where you're slammed, you got to stay till midnight, that you can do it, and you won't, and you can skip dinner. And you can, you know, not that you have to do that every day, but you need to know you have that within you. Um, so I think it's important, it's hard, and I do think we're getting away from that. And now it's like sugar-coated to the point where people don't get to push themselves. And then the next point I want to see, and this is what I want David to see if he, what he thinks, I think that many conditions in life, the more you talk about it, the more you're going to find it. Um, you know? Long COVID is surely real, but it's not 90% of people who had COVID. But they keep talking about it on the media. It might get to 90, 95%. Who knows? And similarly, burnout and wellness and all this stuff, the more we talk about it and have the mandatory Saturday burnout meeting, you're just breeding burnout. You're just seeding the burnout everywhere. Just like, you know, sometimes you can actually increase suicidality by talking about it. And sometimes you can give teen mothers a, a robotic baby and it increases teen pregnancy. Sometimes these things backfire. Um, and I do worry that we talk so much about burnout and people are having a pity party for themselves online all the time that of course no one is going to find the satisfaction in the job because they're complaining too much um all right any of those you want to tackle david the thoughts of the my the the the, the unpopular opinions that yes medical training still needs to be hard and it still needs to make you struggle even though that doesn't mean abuse and paperwork but it doesn't mean hard or do you want to tackle the uh we talk too much about burnout and we're causing it Close. wow there's a there's a lot in there's there a lot there but um, I think that all of us need a certain amount of challenge in our lives and uh, overcoming um, odds uh, or just working hard and having something to show for it at the end uh, is immensely satisfying. And I think that if if something is too easy, I was just watching trailer for documentary for, you know, John McEnroe, 
uh, last night and and how he was on top of the world and he still wasn't happy, uh, you know, and he went through 37 different psychiatrists and therapists and he fired them all mm -hmm. and he was still unhappy at the end. I mean, you know, we, we all sort of, there is a curve there between challenge. If something's too difficult, then, you know, then, then frustration you're sets for, in. For, for breaking down. Yeah. I do think there's a component to, uh, to, to clinical practice and to what academia is becoming in some places. And I don't want to overgeneralize about academia nor about industry, but a component of what people have called moral injury. And that is where, to, as Aaron alluded to, if we're asked to take care of so many patients or do it in a way that doesn't live up to our standards for how we think that patient should ideally be taken care of, that's really, really hard on people. You know, they, I think we all have aspirations for how we want to make a difference. And sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes you, you run a trial and it's, it's negative and, and that's just the, the way life is, even if you put a lot of thought into it. But when it's a system that's set up in a way that makes you unable to be successful with something that's one of your core values, that's, that's really how, I mean, imagine if Simon, every time she had to, she wanted to do another immunoperoxidase stain. She had to call Aetna or United Health or something and get prior authorization mm -hmm. and had to do that all day long. Her job would probably be less satisfying than, than what it is. But <laughs> she's, given, she's given the freedom to look at the slide and do the studies necessary to come up with, even in really hard cases, a diagnosis and help the being the doctor's doctor help the doctor who's in the clinic seeing the patient know what what the patient is dealing with and and that is satisfying at the end of the day you know that's so well put and that reminds me of something that people always ask they say as an oncologist uh, you know naturally you're going to have end of life conversations and those are not easy and 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 you know you you always try to be better at it you balance maintaining some distance versus being being close um, but it's, it's never, it's never nothing. It's always something. It always leaves a little bit of a mark on you. Um, and, uh, and the only thing that I think can make it as good as possible is knowing that when you go in that meeting for that family meeting, that, that, that hard talk, you have as much time as you need. I mean, I know in my job, I have as much time as I need. I can take an hour and a half. I could take two hours, you know, and I'll find a way to make the rest of the day work. But if you're in a busy private practice, five days a week of clinic, and you're seeing 30 patients a day, um, and you have you know, all the other demands of life, you may feel the back of your mind, I gotta wrap this up. And I think that might lead to a lot of the profound moral injury that David talks about. Um, and then the other thing is I think that, um, that I think led to moral injury is enforcing hospital policy that I don't believe in. Um, you know, even the hospital I'm currently working in, one of the policies is that like, un you can't have unvaccinated visitors, even if somebody's like in, and I'm like, oh, that's a, that is a great job of making sure that people who bring in BA5 here are the vaccinated people bringing in BA5 and not the unvaccinated people who, who also could bring in BA5. I mean, the policy makes no sense anymore. It makes no sense. And that's a moral injury. If somebody's loved one is on the sidewalk and they can't see someone as they're dying, um, that's a moral injury. And I don't want any part of perpetuating this bureaucratic nightmare. Um, Okay, Sanam, the question was, I'll bring it back to the question. The question was, and also by asking this question, I'm actually getting a, a litmus test of your all personalities, okay, which is that training does need to be hard. Do you think it needs to be hard? It can't be too easy. Um, and that uh, you, you, can, you can indulge in pity. I mean, pity can also be an indulgence, and maybe that's where our burnout literature is going. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, on this subject. <laughs> um, so uh, I'll give you a little bit of a background is that I, I'm from Iran. I grew up in a very military-like medical education system. So that's my background and that's what I'm used to. So I, I just do not sympathize with this whole, you know, pampering and it, it's just not my thing. But I'll tell you why. Not because I think people should suffer, but I think, you know, everybody, everybody that you know, gets into medical school, fought so hard and tried so hard to get into medical school. And you are essentially fighting against time. You have a finite amount of time to maximize your education and learn what you need to learn to go out there and do a good job, do justice for your patients. And that's why it's hard because time is limited. You know, you have to maximize your time. Time. And you can't do that by expecting to go home every day at five o'clock. It just doesn't work like that. It doesn't need to be hard. You know, I try to be very compassionate with the fellows. I try to be kind. I try to like do everything in my power, like bring them little treats to make it a little bit more fun for them. Yeah. But I don't want to say, you know, it's five o'clock, you're dismissed. If I'm staying here, if I'm looking at cases, you're staying, you're looking at, you're looking at them with me. So that that's that's my uh, you know that's that's my style. Well, I'm glad you said it because I agree with you a lot. And you know, when I was a student, I was the last one in clinic. And when I'm an attending, I'm now I'm the last one in clinic. What happened to me? What happened in my life? I was I, was, I thought I'd be the one leaving, and they would have to finish the notes. But now I'm the one finishing the notes. Everyone goes. Um, not that that's a bad thing. I mean, I do. You know, of course, everyone's got things to do. But you know, it should be hard. It's a learning opportunity. You should seize it. And uh, you know, I think there's a miss. I think. You have to be careful. The problem was the scut work. It was the paperwork. It was the, yeah. the the attendings that were demeaning because they were demeaning to the student because they didn't know the answer. That's really the root reason why a lot of people are demeaning. They want to discourage them from asking more questions that will reveal the ignorance of the attending. All right. I think that's a part of it. And that was a problem. need to be solved. But the solution just can't be everyone's shift ends at three o'clock or two o'clock or, oh. or fewer patients. I mean, that's an easy solution. Keep all the paperwork. Just give every, you know, give the intern three patients instead of whatever we had 10 or 12 or, you know, I forget. Um, uh, because, uh, yeah. sleep, sleep deprivation makes you forget a lot of things. Um, uh, Aaron. Okay. But also I think go on, you want to say something, Sanam? I just wanted to say, you know, but at, at the same time, I do realize that, you know, life life is a balance and i understand if someone you know has something come you know that comes up on a day they need to leave you know we can talk about it you can leave you know it's fine i think as long as we're having a conversation we're communicating you know i i understand it's life uh but again i think everyone should maximize their their learning potential in the finite amount of time that they have I, I really think that that's not something that's something that needs to be said. Uh, but I also think it's it, it's also reflective of, I think, why all of you are sort of uh, you, you you see the upside in what you do. You don't focus on the downside. The fact that you have that attitude. Erin, uh, your thoughts, your thoughts on this question. Are we getting too soft? Too many Nirvana shirts, too much long hair. Huh? Yeah. You well, look like you're a sympathizer. No, you you're a sympathizer. I, I, I have mixed feelings, <laughs> but, you know. I was in the last training group where there were still, as interns, you know, I did Q3 30-hour shifts in the ICU. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, at the time, uh, I was dating my wife. Uh, we didn't have any kids, and that was all I had to really, you know, I lived in some cheap apartment. And, uh, I, you know, I don't want to do that again, but I do look back on that fondly, uh, although I would never want to do that again. Uh, um, and I, but it was important, 
you know, I think we can all agree that there's no place for an attending chewing out a medical student for not knowing an answer and being rude. I think if I see that and we still occasionally see that now, although there is less, that needs to be called out upon and that that attending needs to be like, what's wrong with you? OK, uh, uh, um, but there is something to working hard. And I think we sometimes forget in medicine, like, yeah, life is hard and what we do is hard. But other people don't. It's not like other people don't have it. They all have it easy. I mean, you know, take a struggling family working two jobs, working night shifts and all that stuff. They're working hard and it's unfair, uh, but they're working hard. So, you know, we take care of people's lives and I see it like it's five o'clock and like someone's not doing well. You know, I'm not checking out. You know, I, you know, I'm going in and taking care of the patient and dealing with it just like I would want if it were my loved one or myself. Uh, not that it's five o'clock. I get to go home now. So I think we do need less of that. As with any complex issue, there's balance. Didn't Dave and I run some randomized study of looking at long hours? You know this stuff. Uh, Which one? I thought they did the resident long hours versus short hours and yes. saw. Can you remember that data or no? Yes, yes. There were a few. There's a couple of studies. The uh, uh, Carl Bill Moria from Northwestern yeah. University, I think, ran it. Um, and I think they were run, though, as non inferiority studies with the primary endpoint of like patient error. And the non inferiority margin was like so big you could park a school bus in. And the conclusion of the paper was that long hours is, is non inferior to shorter work hours. Um, I don't think it was run. Uh, uh, and I think I was critical of it at the time. I think I had like a, a lengthy rant because I guess I guess my point is that, you know, I mean, yes. OK, I have a mixed point on this, too. One, um, I think, you know, uh, 30 hour shifts, you know, a few times in your career. Sure. But to make a habit of it, I think you really need a compelling educational rationale or compelling rationale while we're treating this as different um, than other labor forces. And um, and so I felt like I don't think that study uh, held water. You'll pull it up while I'm thinking about it. I think it's uh, there was a surgical one and there's one in running the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, some of them have subset analyses where they wear a watch that actually measured sleep. And one of them, I think one of them showed that if you have a break at, in the middle of the night, you actually don't sleep anymore or something like that. Um, you know, and, 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 and they were all very equivocal. The sample size was low. Um, and if I recall, the non-inferiority might have been, um, oh, now I remember, it might have been something like 28-day Medicare mortality, which usually runs at, I don't know, like uh, 11 percentage points. And the margin was so big that, you know, you pretty much could you know you could you could do anything and it would fit in that margin <laughs> so you could justify any any action but to your point about asking questions and mean answers i'll tell you a little story when i was a student i was on rounds this attending was a was a very old cardiologist and actually unfortunately not living anymore and the attending asked the medical student it wasn't me but asked a different medical student what's the minute ventilation of of a patient, how, how many how many liters of air is this person pushing into and out of their lungs per minute? And the student looked and said, "You know what, Doctor So and So, I um, I just forget. I, I remember reading it. I just forget that minute ventilation." And then the attending said, "Back in my day, they didn't let students come on the wards who didn't have basic common sense." And I was like, "Oh my God!" And the student was like really hurt later. But then later, I was like, "You know, I just have a follow up." That wouldn't really be a common sense kind of, I mean, the minute ventilation is not exactly common sense. It's a physiologic value that's derived from experiments. And I can imagine if you didn't know that factoid, you just wouldn't know it. I don't think you could get there by common sense. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how common sense gets you to that, but okay, sure. Okay. But that was a kind of snarky uh, comment that was said quite often at the University of Chicago, David. I don't know if you you've, may have blacked out those years, but 
that was that was the bit yeah. that was entry level yeah. comments you'd get on wards. <laughs> yeah, uh, day one, the surgical MS three rotation. You know, a senior resident comes in and says, "If any of you guys dare to call in sick, you better be prepared to give me your ventilator settings." <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was hardcore. Yeah, <laughs> ventilator setting. <laughs> Well, my friend was in a, I, I have to disguise it. He was in a very small residency program and they only had like a handful of residents and one person called in sick and they drove to the guy's house and, and they pulled him back and just brought him in. And I was like, oh, that was uh, not appropriate. That's see that, these are the rules, you know, when you call in sick, you're sick, you know, you can't brag him in there. Okay. So, all right. I want to, I want to give you all time to talk about what you were probably expecting you to talk about, which is like, I don't know, try, you know, maybe the, 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 the parts of your jobs you really enjoy. Um, that give you joy. Um, and um, the thing that you feel like, uh, you know, you're really fortunate to be able to do. Um, so why don't we go, this time we'll start with Aaron and then do Sonam and end with David. Yeah, so Aaron, what do you, what do you say? What's that part that you really, really enjoy doing? I mean, you know, besides teaching, just because we've talked about a lot, I think, you know. Probably podcasts, because you're on so many. Yeah, you know, podcasts, <laughs> yeah, I mean, being, that's, you know, uh, <laughs> no. Um, I take care of a lot of rare malignancies and, um, you know, or rare diseases. Some are even malignancies. And usually when I see these patients, they've um, not only seen a general doctor, they've seen an oncologist who's had to tell them, I've never even heard of this disease. And they always tell me that. I mean, can you imagine having a serious illness and the specialist, you know, they, you know, is has have to look it up. They've never even heard of it. And, and uh, when they finally get to me and, you know, not that I'm more smart than everyone else. I've just, you know, happened to have a collection of these patients and I understand the disease process better. Where I get to explain to them the disease process, that there is treatment, that we can help and the satisfaction, you know, I can always see it. They're like, you know, we're so happy we found you, Dr. Goodman, like you have no idea. And I just think to myself, I go, you know, I've helped this, that I've brought, you know, even if I can't even help them medically with good medicine, like I brought some sort of satisfaction relief to this family. And it's a recurrent occurrence in rare disease. And it's, it's very rewarding. And it's like all my reading and all this esoteric stuff, you know, it's helping. Even if it's only this one family, I'm, I'm making them feel better and providing some sort of relief and I'm educating them on their illness. So that provides me great, great joy. Okay. I love that. And, uh, and I, and I, you know, and I'm biased because like your philosophy of medicine really resonates with me. So I know I'm going to agree with you, but I want to push you on it a little bit. You know, when I was a student or when I was okay. a fellow, I often saw, I was at the NIH. So of course there's so many referrals for the quote unquote expert. They're the expert on this rare disease. And at some times it was difficult for me to tell, are they an expert because they have deep knowledge or are they an expert because no one will question when they make things up because they have no, there's no good studies. And so, you know, an expert on Burkitt's lymphoma read that, you know, mTOR inhibition in combination with BTK inhibition, maybe, you know, has some cell culture data, and then they decide to run uh, N of one phase one trial. Um, so, you know, okay, so that's an extreme. So how do you balance expertise? The fact that I know the diseases that you're taking care of, there are there are zero randomized trials, Rosei Dorfman, you know, uh, zero, uh, Erdheim, you know, all these things, zero, 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 histiocytic diseases, zero, 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 zero. There's not even good phase twos. There's not even a fa prospective phase two in some of them. So, so, um, but you know, I mean, I do think you'll know the biology well, and I do think you'll be able to be a relief to the patient because you can explain it in a way. But when you think about how do they go forward, I feel like you must rely on the core principles of medicine that you believe in, which is that if they feel good, it's hard to make them feel better. If they feel sick, maybe I'll give it a try. Those kind of core principles. But how do you navigate that realizing that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty? 
Yeah, I, I do recognize that sometimes being an expert is an excuse for, you know, making up bullshit. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, and I used to be critical of that. But now that I am an expert, you know, maybe I'm some rare, <laughs> Now like, that I am. Like, yeah. like histiocytic malignancies, there is something to seeing a lot. There is, and I, I was wrong about it. I admit, there is something to seeing a lot of these diseases. And it's more just, I'm just seeing the disease process play out in real life. And now I've been doing it in five years. And, uh, you know, we're like five years ago where I would have wanted to start them on treatment. I'm now more comfortable, you know, maybe watching them. And what I always explain to, to patients is, yes, histiocytic malignancies, which I see a lot of, are incredibly rare and there's numerous subtypes. But the principles of malignant hematology or oncology apply to this. And that I'm very familiar with. If this disease is not hurting you, even if it looks pretty scary on bones, like Rosedorfin can invading the bones, the patient's like, I feel fine. I went in for something and they did this test and they told me I got Rosedorfin. You know, I can explain that to them and provide reassurance. So that, that's kind of how I navigate it. And yeah, you know, sometimes there is where you get to the point where you are making stuff up, but, uh, you know, at least I can, I have my experience to lie on, which isn't completely making up. It's, it's off my clinical experience. And that to me is enjoyable. There's something enjoyable about doing that where there is no randomized studies and I just have to use my best judgment. And uh, my best judgment, I will say, is probably better than an oncologist who has never taken care of this disease. Uh, that is, those are fighting words. I love it, but I do think, I mean, I, I love, but you know what I really want to do? A randomized control trial in situations like this of expert, no expert. Okay, that's my, it, you know, it's, it's, it's called a tissue agnostic, a dis expert agnostic study. Okay, Sanam, uh, what, what is the part of your job that gives you the greatest joy? The greatest joy. Gosh, there's so many, but, um, you know, I'll tell you, I think one of the most important things is I, I get up every day and I look forward to coming into work. Uh, it, it energizes me. Uh, and I think it's largely because maybe of an egotistic, uh, probably factor, is that I feel valued. You know, I feel valued both externally and internally. Every day, you know, when I go home at the end of the night, I feel like I made a difference in someone's life. I made an impact that hopefully was a good impact. Um, but but I think it's it's incredibly incredibly important to feel valued. You know, at, at my institution, by my clinical colleagues, by my chair who sits next to me, uh, I never get the feeling of being underappreciated. And I think that's very important. And you you know you try to become better and better when you have that you know when you have that sense in you. Um, and I I love that. Uh, you know, I think being able to make an impact and not having to worry about the financials of the job is something else that I really value being, you know, in an academic setting. I don't care how much money the hospital makes. I just want to do justice to every single patient, you know, case that I see. Um, you know, I don't care if I have to do a couple of extra immunos and it costs the lab a little bit more. Um, I'll do it. I just wanted, I want the patient to get the best care and nobody questions me or penalizes me for that. And I think, again, that's, that's, you know, very valuable in, in my job, knowing in my heart that, you know, I did, I, I took the best care of that one patient that I possibly could. That's really well said. Um, I, uh, I, I definitely feel like there are days where, where I know I did the best job I could for the person in front of me. Um, but you know, my bosses never see that, you know, and, uh, and let's just say the things my bosses say don't always get me the gratitude I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's not always it's not always the good but but you know because they don't get to see they don't get to see my teaching they don't get to see my my patient care okay david um uh but you know that's really well put you know all, what, what all you're doing is you're doing a great job you're smart you're good at your job and uh you're getting the gratitude you deserve Sodom. uh so david what about you what's the thing that gives you gives you the joy Wow, this has been really inspiring listening to Aaron and Sanam and and uh, you're gonna file an application to go back soon, huh? (laughs) (laughs) What I was gonna say is because I'm I'm gonna give a really positive answer too, and and you have three people on this podcast who are um, you know basically happy with what they do and you know really satisfied. uh, So you know that's that's really cool and inspiring. you know, I wonder what it would be if you had like three people on the podcast who were like all disgruntled. So maybe we need to make another version. Of, yeah. Get a better mix. This is yeah, the gruntled version, and that could be the I, disgruntled. Know, I should have invited, you know, uh, uh, Chadi, who because I think he has some tough. Yes, words, we uh, need some anger. Yeah, yeah, but but I mean, I think he's a lot. He's largely justified. I just want to say, if you're listening, Chadi, I do think you're largely justified. But you're right. I should get some disgruntled people. That's part two. <laughs> Uh, the, the the most satisfying part of my job, um, other than seeing the careers develop of of physicians who who are working with me, which is really pretty cool too, and actually overlaps a lot with um, you know uh, helping people progress in the academic world, um, is is that same satisfaction of being able to help a patient through a difficult time or ameliorate their suffering in some way, uh, but to do so on potentially a, a larger scale. Um, and, you know, we have programs right now in early development, everything from novel CAR-Ts to molecular glue degraders to sickle cell uh, gene therapy that we're collaborating with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on. Mm. Uh, I got an email forwarded last night from Mr. Gates himself. He's a smart wow. He was, wow. had some questions about fetal hemoglobin. Um, wow. You know, anyway, um, you know. Tell him to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I don't think he's on Twitter. He should make malignant his book of the month. That's what I really want to see. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's you know the the potential yeah. if one of these succeeds or or a, a subset of them succeed to really transform human health and and know that just like raising a child that 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 you were part of that. My wife and I had dinner with our youngest uh, a couple of weeks ago. She's doing a research project this summer out in the prairies in Minnesota, some yeah. native prairie res- restoration. And she told us we were we were good parents and spontaneously, which was very satisfying, actually. And it it felt like what I imagine getting a Gleevec approved would would be like on the professional level. You know, something that changes the natural history of disease and you know makes people's lives better. So. Uh, that's the most satisfying part of it. That's such a beautiful metaphor, David, that, um, that Gleevec approved, you know, it's changed the lives of, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. But, the, but hearing your daughter say you did a good job parenting is like the same thing. You know, yeah. you know, there's an old one, it, but it's the same it's the same thing. There's an old story in Hindu mythology about a race between two brothers, and the race was who can go around the sun or the solar system as fast as possible. And one brother's very fast; he goes very fast, runs around the whole solar system. One lap, second lap, he's like the other guy hasn't even started. He's like, I'm going to crush you. Third lap, he's going, and then the other brother runs around his parents three times. You know, and it has the same sort of poetry to it. So beautiful, David. That's 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 your next JC article. No, okay. <laughs> um, uh, okay. Now I'm gonna go because I'm a little bit different than all of you in the sense that um, 
Look, I, I, I derive the same pleasure from patient care that Aaron does. Um, I, I've always felt that. That's why I'm a doctor. That's why I still, you know, attend uh, every year. And, and I, I go out of my way to find attending shifts. I'm always sniffing around and signing up for extra things um, because I do derive that pleasure that Aaron talks about. And, um, and uh, I appreciate, uh, like Sonam says, if, uh, if I get a, a pat on the back. But uh, these days, it's, it's few and far between, to be honest, be honest with you. But I, I guess the one thing that keeps me, because I think I could do patient care elsewhere, and I I think I could, you know, even try to reach people elsewhere because these days, as Chadi proves, I mean, you're not, you don't have to be in the university to have a podcast and videos and, you know, and try to reach people and, and teach people. Um, and as you prove, David, you're teaching people every day, you know, so I don't think you have to be anywhere. The only thing that keeps me in the university is the one thing I can do with this that I can't do, I think, for many other sort of perch is that anytime I get any idea that's as crazy or, you know, whatever, uh, out of unconventional in my wheelhouse or outside my wheelhouse, I can find a few people who are equally interested and we can devote huge amounts of energy to that idea and, and really, really do some stuff in that space that, you know, and so like, I don't know, what are those some random things we're working on? You know, we're di we, we dug through all the drug dosing of every head-to-head -head randomized trial, every head-to-head -head trial in cancer medicine to look both at starting doses and then dose modification schema to figure out where do they come up with starting doses? Is it always MTD? Are they looking at biologically optimized dosing? How do they think about dosing? So that's something like very esoteric in cancer drug development. But then I can also do, we have an ongoing systematic review meta-analysis of myocarditis after dose two of every single vaccine you can think of. The differences in myocarditis by dose, by, you know, spreading the interval, by changing, you know, uh, the construct, etc., uh, and then we also have projects looking at you know the the history of uh, of of vaccine approval for the COVID nineteen pandemic, and even more broadly, vaccine approval more broadly. And then I got pulled into a tangent about you know the impact of schools on uh, childhood outcomes, and then also can tutoring. Uh, make up for deficits in education? Is there an age by which that can? So, okay, so I'm, I'm with a foot in education research. You know, it's a few places on earth where you could spend 10% of your time for a month thinking about something that is literally very random. Um, and that's the part that I really appreciate. I think that's the part that trapped me in the university. It's, not, it's, the, it's the intellectual golden handcuff that you have that freedom. Um, and that uh, you may not get a pat on the back for it, but uh, you certainly won't, uh, you won't get too many slaps. <laughs> Nothing you can't take. Okay, so um, I guess, I guess uh, we did a thing. Our time is up. We talked for quite a long time. I'll let you all have any closing thoughts. Um, uh, closing thoughts on this question. I think one of the challenges of this discussion is the challenge that David says, which is, Everyone here is actually probably somebody who tends to run pretty happy. I'm a believer that actually that happiness question, that McEnroe question you're talking about, I'm a believer that happiness is something you have your set point. You know, it doesn't matter really what happens to you in life. You're just going to get back to your set point. And you always think, oh, it's this thing or that thing that makes me here. It's just who you are. You can get all the accomplishments and adulations. You just come back to your set point. Look at McEnroe at his prime. He was really the king. I mean, he was terrific. Only Beyond Borg was his rival, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so when McEnroe was great, he would, you know, but he still just comes to a set point. And then you can have difficulties and challenges and also kind of just come back to your set point. And I think that defines all of you. Your, your set point is probably higher. And when your set point is higher, you're much more likely to stay doing what you're doing for longer uh, rather than constantly looking for the grass is greener. Um, and, uh, and I think also your attitudes about challenges 
also speaks to, I think, the ability to overstand and ignore the unpleasant parts of anything. Anybody's job is some unpleasant parts. Um, but, you know, you, all of you see challenge is important, so you're probably likely to ignore that. Um, okay, any closing thoughts on this issue? Um, maybe I'll start with you, Aaron, and, uh, and then we'll go David, and then Sanam will close it out. Closing thoughts. Yeah. Is it your personality that explains everything? I mean, I... I don't know if you asked my wife what she thinks, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> that's the real, that's the real question. <laughs> yeah, I, I've said this a lot, and I don't know, and then people point out, well, you're lucky, you know. I mean, if you do what you want and what makes you happy, what brings you joy, you know, well, I'm allowed to do that in my current structure. Maybe others are not. But just, I think what I've gotten better at, things that bog you down or uh, upset you, just don't let... I mean, it's a old... I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you know, usually don't matter uh, for the most part. And at least with what I do, what matters most is, you know, what's life or death is my patience and, and, you know, making sure that's good. All the other stuff, which is usually the stuff that bogs me down or causes unhappiness doesn't actually really matter. Uh, maybe it matters. It seems to matter in that moment, but, uh, I think as we've all experienced, you know, two weeks later, it doesn't really matter. I think that, that kind of, and it took me a little bit to get to that point, uh, has definitely made me a happier person. Uh, uh those are my closing thoughts. And then also, but, you and, know, go ahead. having I, I, my wife, I couldn't do it without my family and like, you know, I have an awesome wife and awesome kids and like that, that support me and, you know, without, you know, they do get credit for that. And without that, I couldn't do what I do. Like, uh, I mean, I, I understand that I, I couldn't, you know, I go travel, do, I couldn't do it without the family that I have. So I'm lucky. And the only corollary I'll add to what you're saying is that I think other people who say you're lucky to have the schedule and job you like, they need to push it more the way they want. Do what you want and tell them to go to hell if they tell you. No, I mean, you gotta, you're right. And like, you used to, I think I could like, you said, take advantage of the fellows who just, you know, yeah, UCSD gave me a job. And like, let's just say when I started, it wasn't as good as what I got now. And I, I did, I, I, I go, I got to, the, you know, they're like, you got to do these committees. And I said, I don't want to do them. I did them. I don't like them. I'm not doing it. Guess what? They promoted me to an associate. You know, it, it, you, you got to push back a little bit. got to push and, back. And, and do what you want. You do, actually. You know, sometimes you'd be labeled as, um, you know, difficult uh, person, but you do have to push back. Not all the time, but you do have to push back. It's uh, a positive assertiveness. We'll yes. call it that. Yeah. <laughs> David, closing thoughts on this issue? Yeah, and there's good data to support your um assertion about a happiness set point if you look at people who win powerball or another big ah uh, yeah you're right yeah they regress mm -hmm. a year or two later they're back people who have a life-altering injury and amputation paralyzation or something you know they they go through a dark tea time of the soul and you know very tough time for a while but a year or two later they're often uh back close to to where they they were um yeah so i, I think that it's it's all about the microenvironment and um, if you can make your microenvironment, um, you know, and, and get satisfaction from the work and the conditions around you, then, then you're in great shape. I'm sure there are lots of industry settings where I would be absolutely miserable and not doing work that I found satisfying or being asked to do things that were contrary to my moral compass. I'm not in that kind of an environment. I'm in an environment with people I like and respect, working on projects that that I enjoy. And in academia, you know, things changed over time. There were sometimes when that microenvironment was very happy and productive and and nurturing, and other times when it was tougher and changes needed to be made. So, I think that um, within any setting, 
the more you can do, as Aaron described, to try to craft a, a situation for yourself that is acceptable. It, into each life, a little rain must fall. We, you know, certain things to 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 get to a perhaps a, a greater goal or a greater benefit and and a lot of people think happiness is not necessarily the best the best metric it's yeah. it's more about that deep sense of making a, a contribution some people are maybe miserable in their work but they're making enough money to support their family to get great satisfaction from seeing their children grow up and how they're able to provide for the family and for them that work you know yeah it could be better but it's it's uh it's part of their 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 bigger situation. So, so that would be my thought would be, you know, try to find an environment wherever you are, where you can, you know, be, be your best self as, as Lincoln said, you know, whatever you are, try to be a good one. That's really well said. I think, and I think you're referring to that. Is it Arthur Brooks article, Arthur C. Brooks article and, uh, and the goal yeah. of life. Yeah. And I agree with that sentiment. And uh, yeah, I think you're, you're, it's a, it's a good fit for you to be in a place like Novartis, a place that's doing great science and um, I don't think you'd feel the same if you were working for Carrier Farm, as they say. Uh, so, uh, Sanam, uh, I'll give you some closing closing thoughts. Uh, closing thoughts. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I agree with everything that Aaron and David said so beautifully. Uh, um, I think I want to emphasize two points. I think for for the younger uh, folks, maybe listening to this and considering a career in medicine. Yeah. Uh, people tend to overemphasize the negative on social media. So don't don't listen to that. You know, this is still a great job. I think, you know, getting to getting to a place where you actually can make an impact in medicine, it takes a long time and it's a tough journey, maybe. But once you get there, it's actually not a difficult job. You know, you become an expert in some area, you become so good at it that it almost becomes natural to you. But you're making real impact in, in people's lives. And, you know, I think this is a privilege. It's not something that we have to do. It's a privilege. People trust their lives with you. So, uh, you know, take advantage of that. It's still the best career in the world. I would, if I had to go back and do it a million times over again, I would choose medicine, academic medicine, a million times over again. Wow. And I think that's the right note to end. So, you know, thank you all for doing this, for taking time out of your busy schedule, for going through the requisite hoops to get on the show <laughs> that's another discussion next time i'll be back same discussion three disgruntled uh, uh maybe even maybe even two will be two terminated hey in oncology in oncology they're not too hard to find they're not too hard to find these days two terminated and three disgruntled people but this time we brought you three wonderful people sharing their experiences thank you all so much thanks for doing this episode thank you thank, thank you so much for having us